The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. It's good to be with you all this morning. And I want to welcome each and every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ this morning. Visitors, it is wonderful to have you with us today. We're so, so grateful that you're here. We had a ton of visitors last week. I hope you all had an excellent Easter weekend. Uh, According to the church calendar, it's still the season of Easter. So if you ask me, uh, if you want to wish someone a happy Easter this morning, by all means, I think that's still appropriate. Christ is still risen, amen? He is risen indeed, amen. As uh, Ben mentioned last week, um, the Geyers and Kim and he and myself will be headed to Athens, Greece. As Celeste said this morning, we leave on Wednesday. And so we are very, very excited to get to spend some time with Lara's parents, her in-laws, uh, my in-laws, and to work with some refugees in Greece. So it's going to be a wonderful trip, I think, and a wonderful opportunity to make some connections there and do some good kingdom work. Um, in the meantime, uh, Lara will be sticking back here, uh, and she was going to go on the trip, but she's not going for a pretty good reason, I think, because she is pregnant right now. So... <laughs> Thank you. We're, we're very, very excited. She was dreading me announcing that, but it wasn't that bad, was it? <laughs> no, she is uh, sticking back here because her mission field is in her womb right now, and her mission field is also Jeremiah, so prayers for her as she is alone for eight days. Um, but yeah, no, we're very, very excited, and that means that I won't be here next Sunday, um, but I hope you will be, because we are kicking off a brand new sermon series called The Spirit-Powered Life. So we started with The Spirit-Powered Gospel and Luke last fall, and we're in The Spirit-Powered Church right now, and next week, Jim Dvorak is going to kick off a series about the fruits of the Spirit, right, from Galatians 5. And so that will be the Spirit-Powered Life. We've got some great guest speakers from within and without the congregation. We've got Jim Dvorak, Brad Giddens, Kelly Osborne. From without, we've got Charles Ricks, Jeff McMillan, John DeSteiger. We've got a great, great crew of people, and I know you're really going to enjoy this sermon series. So I hope you will be here next week as we begin the Spirit-Powered Life together. But that means we finish up the Spirit-Powered Church this morning. We're at the end of Acts, chapter 28, in verses 23 through 31. After they had set a day to meet with him, they came to him at his lodgings in great numbers. From morning until evening, he explained the matter to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he had said, while others refused to believe. So they disagreed with each other, and as they were leaving, Paul made one further statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah, Go to this people and say, You will indeed listen, but never understand. You will indeed look, 
but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes, so that they might not look with their eyes, and listen with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Let it be known to you then, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you praise this morning. We give thanks to you, Lord, for your precious mercy that is new yet again this morning. I give thanks, God, that you have called these people here together this morning. And that all across the world and across time, you have called people together to worship your holy name, to lift up the name of Jesus. And we are those who have been called. God, help us to live according to that call. Help us to live spirit-powered lives as your spirit-powered church, saved by your spirit-powered gospel. God, I ask for the gift of preaching this morning. And ask that you would open up our eyes and ears and our hearts to the message of your kingdom. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. It's hard to write a good ending. Just ask people in television. You'll hear TV writers talk about trying to find the right button for the end of a scene. Right? That punchy line at the very end of a scene right before a commercial break. Writers will spend a lot of time trying to find the best, most impactful way to end a scene before they break. It's hard to write an ending to a scene. And it's even harder to write an ending to a season and much more a series. Right? We can all think of great television shows that we loved that didn't quite stick the landing at the end. Right? They just couldn't quite tie things up, button things up at the end in a satisfying way that did justice to everything that came before it. Because it's hard to write an ending. But Luke doesn't disappoint. Luke has spent two incredible volumes leading us up to this point, to Acts chapter 28 this morning, and Luke's ending doesn't disappoint us. Luke has given us an ending in Acts chapter 28 that ties together all of these threads that have run throughout both parts of his work, ties it together in a beautiful tapestry and in a way that does justice to everything that has come before it. And when I think about what has come before, I go back to Acts chapter 1. I go back to Jesus' words right before he's going to ascend into heaven. And he tells his apostles in chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In Acts 28, we have reached the ends of the earth. Right? Paul has reached his ends of the earth by making it all the way to the city of Rome. 
Paul's in Rome, and he's been journeying there for a long time, right? He decided to go up to Jerusalem even when he knew that danger and demise awaited him there. But he went to Jerusalem, and he was bound, and they tried to kill him, and yet Paul invoked his Roman citizenship. And he was able to get a chance to go to Rome to plead his case before the emperor. And so he travels under armed Roman guard, and we have this harrowing journey. We have the shipwreck that Ben preached about a couple weeks ago. And finally, in Acts 28, Paul makes it to Rome. And Paul is uh, essentially kind of under house arrest here, and he wants to talk to the Jews that are in Rome. Right? And so he wants to talk to these Jews who have heard about this Christian sect, the sect of Judaism, and they've heard people speaking against it, but they say, all right, we'll hear you out about this, Paul. And so in verse 23, Luke tells us, after they had set a day to meet with Paul, they came to him at his lodgings in great numbers. From morning until evening, he explained the matter to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. From morning until evening, Paul witnesses to the kingdom of God in Christ. You all have to listen to Ben and I for a half hour on Sunday mornings. Imagine if we had... 10 more hours to go right now, how many of you would still make it? That'd be pretty tough. I don't think I would make that. But, but morning till evening, and this isn't, you know, one of our modern day-long conferences. Paul's not interspersing things with a funny video every hour. Paul's not, you know, breaking to go sell books at his merch table. Morning till evening, Paul is testifying to the kingdom of God in Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And here again, Luke surfaces a theme that has been consistent throughout both of his works. Luke surfaces this idea that Jesus is inseparable from the Old Testament. When Peter preaches on Pentecost, he starts with the Old Testament prophet Joel. When Stephen preaches before his martyrdom. He starts with Abraham. He leans heavily on Moses and he touches David and Jacob and Joseph and Solomon. Time and again, the apostles are telling the story of Jesus and they're telling it as one coherent, unified story, always connected, inextricably, inseparably with Jesus and the Old Testament. And in doing so, they're really just reflecting the, the reading, the exegesis, the, if you will, theology handed on to them by their Savior, Jesus Christ. In Luke 24, these are my words, Jesus says, that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What Luke tells us yet again in this amazing work he's given us is that you can't understand the Old Testament without Jesus and you can't understand Jesus without the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the key to knowing who the Messiah is 
and what must happen. And Jesus Christ is the key to reading all of Scripture, the Old Testament included. Because when Jesus quotes the Old Testament, he is not quoting words that are foreign to him. If we are to believe the doctrine of the Trinity, when Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, he is reappropriating his own words yet again. He is bringing about words that God himself has inspired, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that he is bringing around to their original divine authorial intention. You can't have the Old Testament without Jesus, and you can't have Jesus without the Old Testament. That's what we believe and confess as Christians. Because as Robert Jensen said, he put it memorably, he said, God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead, having before raised Israel from Egypt. The story of God is one unified story, Father, Son, and Spirit. And Jesus, as another theologian has says, the story of Jesus never leaves Israel. The story of Jesus never leaves Israel. We simply follow this, the Jesus story through the many in Israel to the many in the world. Jesus and the Old Testament are inextricably connected because it's authored and lived out and told by the very same triune God. But if Jesus never leaves Israel, what about those in Israel who reject Jesus? If Jesus never leaves Israel, what about those Jews, for instance, in verse 24, Luke says, some were convinced by what Paul had said, while others refused to believe. So they disagreed with each other, and as they were leaving, Paul made one further statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah, Go to this people and say, You will indeed listen, but never understand. And you will indeed look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes so that they might not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Let it be known to you then that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Paul is quoting Israel's scriptures back to Israel, back to these Jews. He's saying, look, Isaiah prophesied about you that you would be rejecting the message of Jesus Christ. And this is a vexing question for the early church. Right? If, if Israel is God's chosen people, what about those who reject God's chosen Messiah? This was a question that the apostles and especially Paul spilled a lot of ink trying to address. I think especially, go back and read Romans 11. Paul is, is just fretting over this question of what about those in Israel who reject Jesus? And yet, we know that the very same is true for Gentiles, right? Paul ends with this kind of note of optimism of the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles and they will listen. 
But we also know that Gentiles, just as much as Jews, are prone to reject Jesus. Gentiles, as much as Jews, can be divided over whether or not they are convinced or unconvinced about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see this throughout the book of Acts, right? In Lystra, in Athens, in Ephesus, the Gentiles often reject Jesus. And Luke has this kind of binary in both his gospel and Acts between rejection and repentance. You're kind of either in or you're out. You're the thief on the cross who will be with Jesus in paradise, or you're the thief who hurls insults and turns away. And so Paul, trying to make his point to these Jews in his midst, in verse 27 he says, For this people's heart has grown dull. Now, the literal wording there is, is really interesting. This, this grown dull actually means this people's heart has been made fat, right? It has been thickened. Uh, it, it has been dulled, in a sense. And so there's kind of, a, in a sense, that Paul is, is saying for those who reject the message of Jesus, there's kind of a layer of, of spiritual blubber around their hearts, Right? Spiritual blubber. Now, blubber, of course, is a good thing for whales, but I think if we transpose it into the rejection of the gospel, it's an evocative image, right? Because blubber is about insulation. It's about um, keeping the whale's internal organs away from the freezing cold water, right? Blubber is about protection. It's thicker and harder to penetrate than regular skin or fat. And so for those who have rejected the gospel of Jesus, there's this this making fat, this making thick, this desensitizing, this spiritual blubber that insulates and and keeps the gospel from getting in. And I think we're all prone to this spiritual blubber at times, aren't we? I think some of us might have more of it Some of us might be born into a life or family that perpetuates it. Some of us, we eat so many unhealthy cultural calories that we build up this layer, this making fat, this dulling. Or we neglect spiritual exercises. We neglect scripture and prayer and almsgiving and fasting. And we build up this resistance, this barrier to the message of Jesus Christ. And we refuse to listen or hear or perceive or understand. But Luke doesn't leave us on that sorry note. Luke ends his book of Acts, as is fitting, with a note of hope. In verse 30 and verse 31, Luke brings to a close this entire two-part work. He says, Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So Paul is testifying to the kingdom 
of Jesus Christ. And he brings up this central theme. Another central theme throughout Luke and Acts is the kingdom of God. So if you're not a Christian, that phrase kingdom of God might not be all that familiar to you. If you are a Christian, and if you were raised in kind of the mold I was, it still might be a bit unfamiliar. You see, I never really keyed upon that phrase kingdom of God growing up. We didn't really talk a whole lot about it. We talked a lot about Jesus. We talked a lot about salvation, about heaven. And of course, the kingdom of God is about Jesus, about salvation, about heaven. But it's not some far-off, distant possibility. In Luke 17, he recounts that at one point the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God was coming, and he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for indeed... The kingdom of God is in your midst. We could render that the kingdom of God is among you. Or the kingdom of God is within your grasp, within reach. Jesus is saying that in his person and presence, the kingdom of God has drawn near. The kingdom of God has been made available. God's reign has been brought about, already inaugurated in Jesus Christ, although it is also not yet. It's not yet fulfilled. It hasn't been consummated upon Jesus' return. And so we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we not only pray, we enact the kingdom. We act and live into the kingdom in acts of mercy and love and justice and grace. We live into the kingdom when we invite others into it, when we witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus has brought the kingdom near. It's in our midst. It's in our reach. And he invites all to enter into it. And that's precisely how Luke brings the book of Acts to a close. Luke gives us a wonderful ending. It's beautiful. But it's also frustrating. Right? Because we don't get all of our questions answered. We don't actually find out what happens to Paul. We don't actually really get to know. We have our guesses that we can make, but we don't actually get from Luke what happens to Paul. We don't know how it goes before the emperor. And I think therein is its own message from Luke. That as fascinating a character as Paul is, as much screen time as he gets throughout Acts, he was never the main character. Peter, Silas, Paul, Timothy, Barnabas, Philip, they were never really the main characters. As we've said before, the main character in Luke's work has always been the living God, has always been the risen Son, has always been the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. God is the main character of Luke's work. 
It is Jesus Christ standing at center stage. It is the Holy Spirit whose name is on the marquee outside. It was never about the fate of Paul. It was always about the faithfulness of God. And that God has drawn near in Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful ending. And I think Eugene Peterson, in his message translation, gives us another poignant, beautiful translation of it. Of course, it's not word for word, but when you open up the message, you're not going there for word for word. But Eugene Peterson renders it like this. He says, Paul lived there for two years in his rented house. He welcomed everyone who came to visit. He urgently presented all matters of the kingdom of God. He explained everything about Jesus Christ. His door was always open. Paul wasn't able to convince all of these Jews about the message of Jesus Christ. He had the same success and failure with the Gentiles. Right? Luke, again, has this kind of binary throughout his gospel. You either accept Jesus and repent, or you reject and turn away. You're either the thief on the cross, or you're the other thief. And yet, there is also this thread throughout Luke saying that even those who reject, the door to the kingdom remains open to them. Even the ones who have rejected Jesus. Jesus, in fact, in Luke's account of the cross, says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even the ones who've rejected, who've turned away, whose hearts have been guarded by spiritual blubber. In Luke's gospel, there is this thread saying, even to those, the possibility of the kingdom remains open. That even if you are a Sidonian widow or a Syrian leper, the kingdom of God is open to you. If you are sinful Peter cowering before Jesus, if you are the sinful woman weeping at his feet, the kingdom of God is open to you. If you are a tax collector or a sinner, if you are a scribe or a Pharisee, the kingdom of God remains open to you. If you're a teenage Mary or an aged Anna, if you're a Cornelius, if you're an Ethiopian eunuch, the kingdom of God remains open to you. If you've done terrible things, things you don't even like to think about, much less talk about out loud, if you've had terrible things done to you, if you have no idea who you are, if you're completely lost, the kingdom of God is open to you. And not only is it open to you, but it's in your midst. It's in your reach, your grasp. Because Jesus Christ The triune God has come near in the flesh 
and he has offered himself the Messiah of Israel, the head of the church. And he opens up the possibility for grace and redemption and forgiveness. And even those of us who may not even believe in God, who might hate the church, might hate Christians, Saul is a character in this book after all. The kingdom of God remains open to you. The door is always open. As one theologian writes, while man may deny God according to the word of reconciliation, God does not deny man. Man may be hostile to the gospel of God, but this gospel is not hostile to him. The fact that he is closed to it does not alter the further fact that it is open for him. The kingdom of God has come near. It's in your grasp. It's in reach. Take hold and walk through the door, church. Let's stand and praise the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ.